Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'm your host, Shreya Gupta, and my co-host, Magna Keshep. And in discussion today, we have our guest, Dr. James Lau. Dr. James Lau is a professor of surgery at Stanford University. He's the assistant dean for clerkship education at Stanford School of Medicine, director of the Stanford Surgery ACS Education Institute and Goodman Surgical Education Center, as well as the director of surgical education fellowship and the director of the course clerkship and surgery. He completed his undergrad degree in bioengineering at University of California, San Diego, followed by medical training at Loyola University, his general surgery residency at Indiana University, and finally, a fellowship in minimally invasive and bariatric surgery at Stanford. He also completed a master's degree in health professions education from University of Illinois, Chicago. Dr. Dr. Lau, thank you so much for joining us. We are uh, very honored to have you on Behind the Knife. I'm so, honored to be on. Thank you for asking me. Uh, we would like to start off our discussion by uh, kind of getting to know a little more about your background and what led you to surgery and uh, your focus on surgical education. Well, I've always considered myself a teacher. And so um, with my interest in surgery and taking care of patients, it just kind of went hand in hand. Uh, and Kind of what I what I tell um, my students and my uh, residents is the best way to be a teacher is to remember um, what it was like to be a student and what it's like to be a resident. And so, I mean, honestly, I kind of consider myself a resident, so it uh, kind of flows naturally. Um, so I have just always enjoyed teaching and working with medical students and residents, and it kind of led itself to... Uh, kind of mind being an advocate for um, medical students uh, and resident, uh, not only teaching, but uh, kind of their rights, especially as the environment of clinical care and in clinical education has become more and more complex. Um, and then everything else kind of flowed from there, but it still um, stems from the fact that I enjoy uh, just my time in working with uh, students and residents. So <clears throat> I think that um, it's starting to become more of a, I guess this isn't the perfect word, but a trend that um, more and more educators are starting in surgery are starting to get masters in um, education. And so I was wondering what you, you completed your masters in health profession, professions education. How did that kind of change how you are as an educator? What did you learn from that program that you may not have learned just through empiric um, teaching in the clinical setting? Well, thanks for that question. Um, I've been um, in formally in medical education since 2002, um, but to consider myself a, an educator, uh, I think nowadays requires um, some formal kind of uh, not just teaching, but uh, kind of learning in the uh, basis of education, which stems a lot out, out, of, out of education from K, K through 12. But more specifically, a lot of the things that we know in medical education are actually taught and um, 
uh, a lot of the um, things that we know about assessment and in teaching are from uh, the disciplines of psychology. So a master's in health professions education kind of gives you that background and gives you the common language to talk about education uh, in not only in surgery, but in different disciplines and the different professions that are involved. So, uh, and then it allows you to be able to be part of a network um, of educators around the country and, and the world uh, to not just reinvent the wheel and in, in things that you are doing locally, but to um, have colleagues to share in this um, responsibility in teaching uh, medical students and residents in uh, in a time that's actually uh, more and more complex and, and harder to do well. So I think that um, I uh, specifically did my master's um, not only to gain that language and uh, the collegiality around the world, but uh, in leading the surgical education fellowship, uh, the master's was going to be part of what I required my residents to do. Uh, so I figured I can't really, um, you know, be a, an example of others if I didn't do it myself. And so I'm especially glad that I've done that, um, not only to be uh, an example that if I can do it, anybody can do it, but also to continue that um, community of educators and to contribute that to that with uh, people who are also getting master's in health professions educations in surgery. Could you tell us more about this fellowship that you're talking about? Well, the fellowship here at Stanford um, uh, has been around for eight years, uh, but the accreditation to simulation and education fellowships are through the American College of Surgeons Education Institutes, and that's been relatively new for the last four years. And there are um, a lot of surgical education fellowships now that are across the country. Uh, following the, the model where you spend two years teaching in undergraduate and medical uh, and graduate medical education, but also in collaborating with others and doing research, mostly curricular research. So um, putting together thoughtfully modules and curricula in medical education, and then most importantly, evaluating that, finding lessons, not just in iterating, but also publishing in order to show others uh, and uh, be a nidus for others to come and talk, uh, to collaborate in uh, trying to figure out some of these issues in medical education. And um, the master's usually takes about two years. There are multiple different places that people can get them. Um, and building in not just scholarship and teaching and learning, but formal learning and, and education, I think, is a good model. And places like the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Indiana University, yeah, UC Davis and UCLA are following that model. And there are uh, lots of research fellowships um, such as EMEO uh, and they're growing and growing. And I think that um, residents who are between their second and third or third or fourth year in surgery, uh, where they would traditionally go for their lab years, I think uh, would serve themselves to do one of these fellowships if they want to be a leader in education. Uh, I think a, a thoughtful leader uh, in uh, positions like clerkship director, assimilation center director, or in uh, program director, I think in the in the future, it's, it's going to require a bit more of a, of a knowledge of educational principles and and to talk to other uh, disciplines and professions to be able to uh, to run not just run a program well, but to advocate for residents and students. 
Yeah, that's great. And I, I think it's great that that program exists in the residency level. Um, so we're going to jump into our dissection of the day where we want to talk about medical student mistreatment. And specifically, you uh, recently published um, as a group in the resources and surgical education that's found on the ACS website. We'll link to it in our show notes about medical student mistreatment. My first question for you Did this publication actually come out of that fellowship? Is that how um, this study came about? Well, um, the way that we work in our in our group uh, is that uh, people come up with ideas, especially in things that we're doing um, curricular wise, and then to uh, evaluate them. And when I first became uh, clerkship director, I kind of got hit with this uh, from the dean basically asking me, what my mistreatment rates were in surgery core clerkship and what was I going to do about them. And I, I had at that point not really understood uh, what what that issue was. And then there were medical students and residents that were working out of this Goodman Surgical Education Center who um, were medical students that actually were in the core clerkship beforehand. Uh, and then during the time that we did the program, uh, and had an interest in medical education. So a lot of our work just kind of snowballed from people being interested in the particular topic and things that we were doing. And they didn't just iterate it. They they uh, went ahead and contributed to the um, the scholarship of it, too. And as we changed the program year to year, medical students and residents and the education fellows are a huge part of that. So we would kind of work together as a team on projects. And as people become interested in them, we uh, we we uh, definitely um, enjoy having better ideas to tackle a problem that um, is uh, it's pretty ubiquitous now, I think, not just in um, student education, but also in residency. How would you define medical uh, student mistreatment? Well, I think mistreatment is a is a harsh word, but sometimes that's what's required. Um, I think the definition is hard to know because depending on which which group you ask, the definition is different. And especially um, the, the, the definition for the medical students themselves is fairly individual. I think when you're talking about a, an educational environment and whether it works well or it doesn't, it has to be um, through the lens or the context of the team, but also of the students. Um, and in the, in the um, Specifically in medical student mistreatment, I think it has to do with how the student feels when they're going through the clerkship and whether they are able to uh, learn in that environment effectively. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, communication, miscommunication, expectations, whether they're set or not. And then just, uh, you know, um, teamwork and communication, which I think underlays most of everything that we do in surgery. So in this article, you talk about three roles of the student um, as, you know, as a student, as a member of the medical team, and then as an individual, and how mistreatment applies to each of these roles. Can you talk about this a little more for our listeners to better understand? Sure. Um, so in the last three years, uh, um, since we've been um, rolling out the program, and, uh, and the program just consists of, of talking with the medical students and trying to getting them to understand the importance of uh, having their own threshold 
uh, whether they would report or not, um, we went ahead and collected lots of surveys and did focus groups. And uh, we were mostly the medical students in doing a lot of the focus groups and the individual interviews in order for them, to, uh, the medical students, to feel safe in um, and in answering the questions. And uh, what we found thematically was that the medical students found themselves in kind of three different roles uh, when they're on the in the clinical clerkships. And then one is, of course, as a medical student. So they want to learn. They're here for an educational opportunity and they want to participate in patient care. And then they want to be part of the team. The medical students want not only to be included, but also to feel essential in taking care of the patient. And then, of course, all of us want to be respected as individuals. So, uh, and the reason why we had uh, in our schematic on the RISE article, um, you know, the three different uh, categories, but putting them in circles and then having them overlap is a lot of these concepts and themes kind of um, bleed and blend into each other. So some of them are related to each other. And then the students felt um, specifically when it was a challenging educational environment and when it would cross the line to mistreatment had to do with, as a student, anything that would obstruct their learning and then as an individual, anything that would exploit their vulnerabilities or to disrespect them as individuals. And then uh, as a member of the team, anything that would uh, that they would feel as exclusion. It could be even as um, uh, when the medical students don't know or have any direction at the end of the day, and when the rest of the team is rounding without them, then this would uh, feel to some medical students as mistreatment. So along those lines, uh, surgical residents can, you know, get caught up in their work. And uh, sometimes it's just tough to keep uh, medical students uh, up to par. And what are some of the strategies that uh, residents can use as they try to refine their role in um, uh, being a teacher? And how do we overcome this? Well, I think um, there are several strategies that people can use. And a lot of this comes out of the um, literature of um, being a mindful educator. And uh, to me, I'll, I'll uh, summarize. Um, I think if the residents remember what it was like either a couple years or just a couple months ago, what it was like to be a medical student, I think that all the principles just come out. Number one is uh, every opportunity, uh, I mean, ev every kind of encounter uh, with a medical student can be a teaching opportunity. Um, and it doesn't have to be formal teaching. A lot of the teaching and the learning that we do in, in the clinical environment are um, what educators call the hidden curriculum. It's how to be a mentor. So if you look at what the medical students learn, there is medical knowledge, there are clinical skills, and then the attitudes in which they learn are, are from the residents and attendings that they work with. So how do they deal with difficult situations? How do they deal with acute situations? Um, what happens if they think they do something wrong and how do they portray that? How do they disclose that? How do they work together as a team? Uh, and I think residents can not only uh, facilitate their learning in the knowledge, skills, and attitudes, but especially that of how to be a good physician professionally. And that's basically just being conscious of that, uh, the fact that 
you know, medical students and others are watching? And how would you want uh, patients um, to think of you? And then I think the medical students will also think uh, about how they want to portray themselves and how they want to be uh, in the, you know, as a patient care provider. Um, and a lot of the things that we've elaborated as contextual modifiers of mistreatment, um, I think that if the students know that there's a teaching purpose and that you as a resident are always there to be a teacher and to have their back, I think that medical students are fairly forgiving. They understand the context of, of acuity so that if somebody's bleeding on the table, they're not going to ask about what that artery, what that vein is. Um, and I think that if you come back and uh, talk about a situation or a patient case in a constructive, uh, you know, um, in a constructive intent, I think that the medical students appreciate appreciate that a lot. So if there's follow through when things are a bit quieter, and uh, especially if you parcel out maybe even a couple of minutes a day just to kind of recap or do a debrief on the day with their patients, uh, I think that that context of education. Uh, goes a long way. So a lot of this just has to do with uh, valuing them as a member of a team. For sure. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. A lot of times medical students think that what we call uh, pimping, you know, we're trying to educate them on a topic. And a lot of times if you are asking them questions, kind of putting them not on the spot per se, but that pimping is is viewed as a sort of mistreatment as well. And have you noticed that in your in your work and your in your research work? Is that is something that students are also considering mistreatment? And if so, what are some of the ways that we can promote education without it, it being viewed in a negative light? Well I think uh, pimping is basically just education in the uh, you know um, it, it, on the clinical wards, that's um, pretty open. So I think just asking questions of a medical student or, or a resident um, in the in the public is what sometimes causes anxiety. I mean, I think the residents also feel that way when they're on rounds and being asked questions. I think that what makes people feel safe is if um, the person doing the the pimping or the questioning sets the tone first, and it can it can take a couple of seconds. And it can it can basically sound like, well, we're going to start asking questions, and um, this is a learning environment for the for us all. There is um, there are answers that if we don't know, then we'll go up the chain, or we will assign somebody to look them up and and educate all of us. Uh, those kinds of um, not just statements, but that kind of theme. Um, if everybody involved in that educational encounter. Um, understand that it's a safe learning environment. I think that uh, everybody there would not only um, learn something, but I think they would enjoy it too. And uh, if the medical students are presenting or being asked questions, if you do that with the residents and, and if you just do that with the other medical students and you don't just pick on one all the time, I think that a lot of the things that students feel as mistreatment in those kinds of uh, venues um, probably would go away. You already kind of touched on this a little bit about debriefing at the end of the day and take, you know, during downtime, taking those opportunities to um, interact with the students and debrief with them. 
But what you do during a high intensity situation, whether it's a surgical crisis, like a trauma emergency surgery, or whether it's just, you know, something going wrong, the patient is crashing on the floor or in the OR, how do you maintain that educational aspect when you're, you yourself as either a resident or a faculty, um, you're trying to just handle the situation? Well, I think that if you have a relationship with the student, and what I mean by that is if they know that you're there as an educator, sometimes um, you just have to take a time out from education. And if the students know about that ahead of time um, with expectations that were set uh, that were set ahead of time, then that's helpful. But if not, and um, and you know, and I've done this before where I have a patient that's crashing in the unit, uh, and then I am somewhat abrupt with the student and or uh, when I'm trying to take care, you know, basically trying to save a life. And then if you follow back on and just say, look, I'm sorry, I was a bit rude. Um, I was really worried about the patient. And you just explain the things that are on your, on your mind for about 10 seconds. Uh, I think most students would, would understand that. Some students will understand that from the get-go and then uh, kind of fade into the woodwork a little bit when those things are happening, depending on their skill, skill level. Uh, but if they're if they're helping, then that's great, and then you can direct them. But if they're not helping, then I think it's totally appropriate in in the guise of patient safety to um, have them stand back, and and then education takes a bit of a time out when it comes to a formal uh, formal education. But a lot of times, the medical students, if just watching a situation and not actually being part of it, uh, especially if they don't know what to do, can be educational for them too. And then maybe that day or later on or even that week, this, uh, the student and you can kind of discuss the situation and what they've observed. And you can, make, you can make that an educational opportunity, even if they did not take part in it, or even though if you remove them from that, um, uh, from participating in those things. Because patient safety is number one, and uh, students need to understand that, too. Do you think these similar principles and themes apply to medical students and then residents and fellows? Like, what do you think changes when these um, at the resident and fellow level? I think it also probably applies to how we treat other, um, you know, other physicians and other specialties when we uh, take consults or, or when we give consults or when we work interdisciplinary. And I think that there are different um, specific factors on different levels. Um, We've done a lot of things in medical student mistreatment, but I would not even um, pretend to understand uh, what the situations would be like in residence. So we're doing some initial kinds of work and trying to figure that out. But residents have a lot more context uh, when it comes to attendings. And so they have more contact with the attendings and more understanding of the not only institution, but the field of surgery as they go. So where some medical students come in and they're not going to go into surgery uh, and they didn't have any um, knowledge of what the surgical environment was before they came, most residents and fellows and attendings know that. So they, so they have a little bit of a shortcut. Now, how they deal with those kinds of um, not just social but hierarchical uh, and sometimes political um, you know, uh, frameworks, uh, it's, it's, an individ it's individual. But I think there are similar um, manifestations that can happen from 
quote unquote mistreatment at uh, the resident fellow and the attending level. And I think that manifests itself not only in burnout, but dissatisfaction, attrition. Uh, you can just keep on going on and on. So we'll move on to our final five. It's a kind of light questions for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more personally. So our first question for you, do you have a favorite book or can you tell us what you currently or most recently read? Okay. Um, so I, I love to read and uh, different categories of books that I like are, um, I like to read about communication and teamwork. I like to read um, what I, uh, stories of leadership, usually people who are marginalized while they're alive and then celebrated while they're, they're, um, they're no longer with us physically. Um, and then um, even though I'm, I don't count myself a sports fanatic, I think sports is a, it's kind of a nice, um, I don't know, microcosm of what we do, not only in, in medicine, but in life. And so uh, a book that I'm rereading now is uh, Moneyball by Michael Lewis. And um, what I like about it is that it's uh, a story about somebody who's finding a different way for selection. And so as somebody who's in residency selection, I'm always trying to think of a way to select residents better. And that story, uh, Moneyball and Baseball, is uh, somebody who had the courage to try to find a different way for selection. And uh, so I'm inspired by that. So I'm rereading that form of continued inspiration. Very nice. Our next question for you, what was your favorite trip or favorite vacation? Okay, I'm not sure whether I can answer that as far as vacation, but uh, <laughs> my um, daughter recently went to college, so um, just spending time with her in uh, her choice of Los Angeles was, uh, was kind of nice before she went off to college. So um, just to have family trips now that my children are older, I think is nice. Yeah, that's great. So this might be a tough question, but what is something you think that everyone should do at least once in their life? No, it is a tough question. Um, I think, I'm not sure this is going to be a specific answer to your question. I think people should live honestly. Um, and I think that we have a lot of emphasis on um, doing things um, to learning things, to doing things uh, from an intellectual standpoint, um, using data, using evidence-based, even in our kind of our personal life. And I think that what would be important is to live your life um, and, um, I mean, live it honestly and sometimes just use your heart and not your head. Okay. I think everybody needs to do to live for themselves at some point. That is very true. Uh, our next question, what would you be doing if not medicine? Um, I think that I consider myself as a teacher. So I think that if I didn't, if I wasn't doing anything in, um, in medicine or if I wasn't a surgeon, I would definitely be doing something service oriented. Um, I've been in the military. I can see myself still in the military, but not in the, uh, the medical realm. Um, but I think serving others is uh, in any kind of fashion is what I would probably be doing. So our last question for you right now, if we were to grab your white coat, what would we find either in the pockets on the lapel in or on your white coat? That's a good question. Um, so on my white coat now, believe it or not, even though I'm, I guess I'm considered a senior surgeon now, uh, frightening fact, I have a stethoscope. 
um, uh, so that when I examine patients, I do examine them, even, uh, uh, even when I see them now. Uh, I think it's important to remember physical diagnosis and in, uh, in treating patients. Um, I have a script pad. Um, I have my Stanford pin, my Stanford surgery pin on my lapel, and I have my ACS uh, American College of Surgeons pin on it too. Those are things that uh, I'm proud of being not just a surgeon, but be part of a um, group of surgeons that are dedicated not only in educating others, but in, in taking the best care of patients. Um, and uh, I, I also, on my ID badge, um, the, uh, the ID holder, um, currently it's, um, it's what it's a, it's, you know, it has a monkey on it for like, uh, for children. But I think that, uh, when people see you in a white coat, if they see a little bit of your personality or something that's not necessarily medical, I think it's more helpful to be able to, um, help and, and communicate with patients if they know that you're a human being too. And sometimes a white coat can be just, uh, distracting and detracting. Well, Dr. Lau, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, it was wonderful uh, talking to you about this very important uh, topic, and we appreciate your expertise on it. Um, oh for our listeners, if you want to cont- uh, connect with Dr. Lau, he's on Twitter. Um, his Twitter handle is JNLAU67. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for uh, this very enjoyable discussion. Until next time, dominate the day.